the odds are one in 468 that of all the sermons in a nine-year book-by-book plan through the Bible that you would come to this sermon on Romans chapter one. There are pastors who choose a topic and then find scripture that backs up their preconceived thesis. That is not what we practice at Highlands Community Church. I don't pick topics. I've endeavored to go book by book through the Bible. Our team is moving book by book through the Bible along with a curriculum that lines up everybody in sixth grade through the cemetery. (laughs) Book by book through the Bible. And in that book by book plan, You've come on the day that we're preaching Romans chapter one. Now Romans chapter one, my LGBTQIA plus friend is very clear. I have been very forthright about my own sins and struggles. Is that true Highlands Community Church? And so now we're gonna talk about yours because it comes up in the text. We won't talk about it next week, why? Because it's not in next week's text, but it is in chapter one. And so just as we did when we studied the book of Genesis and got to chapters 18 and 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, whom Paul uses as an archetype in this passage, just as we did back then, we will not get in the text's way because God has spoken. He's very clear in what he says. Our attempts to speak on his behalf and make God more politically correct are futile. So we're gonna let God say what God has said. And not only will this speak directly to the causes you champion, my LGBTQIA plus friend, but Christians who have tried to water down what God has said, you will be the most offended of all by this passage. I endeavor to share with you what God's word says. So that if you should choose to leave this place and storm out angry with me personally and continue living in a sin against God, you at least do so knowing that God has called it sin. If all that we accomplish today is to clarify for you that God considers this a sin, what God says about the foundational nature of knowledge itself and how we suppress that truth of God with our wickedness. If all that happens today is we set the record straight on what God says on the matter, it's been a successful sermon. But my prayer is for much more than that. My hope is that you'd give your life to Jesus today, that you would pray with me the same five verses that I've been sharing at the end of every sermon I've preached for a year and a half at Highlands Community Church. The high schoolers have known about this since last summer. It's time to tell you why I finish my sermons the way that I do. With the same five Bible verses, John 3, 16, Romans 3, 23, Romans 6, 23, John 14, 6, and Romans 10, 9. Not only am I sharing the gospel with somebody who has never heard the gospel before, but member of Highlands Community Church, longstanding Christian, I'm training you in evangelism. Ha, I got you. (laughs) Because when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, uh, is not a proper response. I want you to share the word of God. I want you to share John 3.16. Just like today, my LGBTQIA plus friend, you're going to pray John 3.16. Christian, I want you to share Romans 3.23. Just like my LGBTQIA plus friend, I want you to pray Romans 3.23. That we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Christian, member of Highlands, just like I want you to share 
Slide across the table your Bible, open to Romans 6, 23. I want you to pray Romans 6, 23. I want you to pray John 14, 6. I want you to pray Romans 10, 9. For a year and a half, I've been teaching you how to share your faith. And as of the launch of our series in Romans, that's gonna become much more an audience participation part of our sermon, okay? It's no secret that I'm gonna end all of my sermons with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we talk about God's wrath for sin, I want you to know that we're gonna end with God's grace for sinners. So though the text may be difficult, though it may be hard on your heart, do you trust me that the whole thing is gonna end with grace? All right, so stay with me as we see about God's wrath for sin so that we can arrive at God's grace for sinners at the end. Look at Romans chapter one, verse one with me. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was the descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. Paul opens up by citing his credentials and referring to his purpose. We saw the calling of Paul in Acts chapter nine. In Acts chapter nine, there's a man named Ananias who is called by God to go and meet Saul. Saul of Tarsus was his official title. Later in life, he goes by his more Romish name of Paul, and we refer to him as an apostle. But he was the consummate Pharisee. He was the ultimate authoritative Jew, and he was overseeing the first martyrdom of the New Testament. In the book of Acts, he is there lending his official approval as Stephen, one of the first preachers ever in the New Testament era, is having his life extinguished by stones that are being thrown at him. And as they throw stones at him, Stephen prays for the people who throw the stones that extinguish his life. Then, with authority from the chief priests to arrest all followers of the way, that's us, before in the Pisidian city of Antioch, they came up with the pejorative term, the insult, Christian, meaning, meaning little Christ, that we kind of adopted as our own. With full authority to arrest all followers of the way, he encountered Jesus. It left him blinded. And now Ananias comes to him in Acts chapter 9. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has the authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes it's God's will that you would suffer. Welcome to Highlands Community Church. If you came from a prosperity background, prosperity teaching background, that verse just rocked your world, didn't it? But it also just made sense of your suffering. Sometimes it's God's will that you suffer. And as you suffer, as you stand there in the furnace, Jesus stands with you. It was God's will that Paul would suffer for Christ's name. He was God's chosen instrument to reach the Gentiles. That means non-Jewish people. Now, we see Paul's impeccable, incredible credentials in, in the book of Philippians in chapter three. He refers to his resume briefly, speaking about 
all the reason he has comp, uh, ha, reason to have, have confidence in the flesh. And in verse four, Philippians 3, 4, he says, although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, which was the biblical command, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews with impeccable pedigree, regarding the law, a Pharisee, the highest rank you could have, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is by the law, blameless. Hey, Paul was the ultimate Jewish authority, which makes him the perfect candidate to write this book because he was the ultimate personification of everything, everything the Old Testament called for. He embodied the utmost of Jewish excellence. And now he, of all people, of course, is God's chosen instrument to reach the Gentiles. The Bible is divided between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That is to say, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, which the author of Hebrews, whom I believe to be Apollos, describes as better by far. But all of these are part of one larger redemptive story. The law of God in the Old Testament shows us why we are condemned for our sin. But then the grace of the New Testament, Jesus' sacrifice upon the cross fully atones for our sin as per that law, and his resurrection from the dead secures our victory over the consequences of our own sin. So by God's own redemptive work, establishing the law and then satisfying the law himself, he can be with fallen mankind forever and eternity without having compromised one iota of his holiness or intent. It's brilliant on God's part. And so here Paul stands at the apex between the covenants, embodying Old Testament excellence, ushering in the New Testament era, explaining to the Jews why he's affiliating with the Gentiles, explaining to the Gentiles why God did what he did through the Jews. Thus gives us the book of Romans. It is all built upon God's covenant with Israel, and now it invites Gentiles in. Here's my interpretive lens as we go through the book of Romans. To begin, remember this, God is the sovereign author of truth, and he is the judge of free and culpable man. Culpable meaning we're going to answer to God for what we've done. You're going to see that in Romans chapter 1 today. So God is sovereign. That's why the book of Revelation exists. Okay, he's already decided how it ends. He is sovereign, he, meaning he so reigns, meaning he's in control, he's on the throne. So God is sovereign, he's the author of truth, he's the judge of free and culpable man, and he created and elected Israel as his own covenant people. All right, so God is the sovereign author of truth and the judge of free and culpable man. He created and elected Israel as his covenant people, so that now, because of Jesus, Gentiles may call on him and be saved. That is my basic overview of the book of Romans. He is explaining God's election of Israel. And now, all Gentiles may call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. So that's why you see this theme of election run the gamut throughout all of Romans. So God is calling Paul to reach out to the Gentiles. Our curriculum will cover some of the, 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 the text from verses 8 through 17. Would you pick up in verse 18 with me now? For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed with their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. If you've ever disobeyed your parents, would you raise your hand real quick? We're all in this list, aren't we? So you can't get too self-righteous, Christian. You may have never struggled with same-sex attraction in your life. That doesn't mean you can tune out and play Angry Birds during the sermon. Verse 31, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. This is the word of God. It's very clear. But it has become a common practice in Christianity to water this down because this has become politically incorrect in recent years. God's word is God's word. Whether it offends you or not is irrelevant. What God has said is what God has said. All scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and training, and correcting in righteousness so the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Just because it's politically incorrect doesn't make it less inspired. It is just as inspired as the beautiful red words of Jesus' parables in the Gospels. It is just as inspired as the words of creation, the words of salvation. It is salvation itself. This is the word of God. And in this, Paul has provided nothing short the basic thesis for all of epistemology. It speaks to how we can know things, how we understand what we believe and why we believe it. And it meets us directly at one of the common errors of our day. This is describing the playbook that was used at Sodom and Gomorrah, but it's not Sodom and Gomorrah alone. It is the same ethic that has been at work in countless late stage societies spanning millennia. There's nothing new about this. Does this sound familiar to you? As we read this mode of thinking, doesn't it sound like modern thought? Doesn't it sound like our own modern cultural, secular ethic? It's because it is. We haven't in invented anything new. 
We've just picked up Sodom and Gomorrah's playbook and we're reiterating it, just like the ancient Greeks did before they collapsed, just like ancient Rome did before it collapsed, just like other ancient societies all did before they collapsed. Let's go back through this text because I believe that though these words are difficult to hear, they are the conviction that will bring about salvation in the hearts of people who are present in this room right now. That in Jesus' name, because this text is convicting and because we're gonna be faithful to what it says, there are gonna be more Christians who walk out of these doors than there were who walked into it, amen? Look back to verse 18 with me. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, Godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Jesus said this in John 3, 19. This is the verdict. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. It's consistent with what Paul's writing here in verse 18. That we know the truth. In our heart of hearts, we know the truth of God. I led someone named Charles to Christ. For 14 years, Charles was running from God as far as he could. In fact, at one point, he was a straight-up devil worshiper, okay? He gave me a satanic Bible, wrote a really kind dedication in the inside cover. I'm a, I find myself conflicted because I cherish my satanic Bible, and I'm a Christian pastor. That's weird. My wife was like, take a picture of it and throw it away. <laughs> We're not keeping that in the house. He and I would exchange reading assignments and for 14 years shared the gospel with him. And then he became more of a militant atheist who actually enjoyed, reveled in, and prided himself upon his ability to dissuade Christians of the gospel, to talk Christians out of Christianity. He celebrated stripping people of their Christian faith. And for 14 years, 14 years, God called me to share the gospel with him, to be a friend to him, to engage with him on these matters. There were times when I asked God, could somebody else please be tagged in here? God would not relinquish. The calling was clear. And today, Charles is a Christian. Praise God. And he said that even while he was trying to dissuade Christians of their Christianity, even while he was successfully doing it, he said, Jesse, if I'm brutally honest, I always kind of knew deep down in my heart of hearts that the gospel was true. Okay, this man has the devil tattooed on his arm. It does not get any more anti-Christian than that in his life before Christ. So my skeptical friend Forgive me if I'm not persuaded by the front you put up. In your heart of hearts, deep down, this text is true and you know it. You know the gospel is true. You've always known the gospel is true. You know that God is real. You know that he loves you. You know that he's calling you higher. You know he has more in your life than your sin, but you've been suppressing that truth with wickedness. You have chosen to believe idiotic things because you feel like it gives you license for sin. You've chosen to believe foolish ideas like the universe could generate itself out of nothingness, that life could just spring from non-life, that morality is just a construct and our consciences are lying to us. You have chosen to believe utter foolishness because you feel like it gives you license to satisfy sinful desires, not any more. No more suppressing the truth with wickedness like the text describes here. Because verse 20, 
Verse 20 is absolutely true. For God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what God has made. As a result, people are without excuse. You are out of excuses, my skeptical friend. God's eternal power and divine nature have always been clear to you. Let's talk about these two attributes of God, the invisible attributes that are clearly understood from what God has made, eternal power and divine nature. The eternal power speaks to God's timelessness, eternal as in he exists outside of time. Take a look at the fermata. Within musical notation, when you arrive at a fermata, time stops. I think that's pretty cool. You kind of, as, you, as you're conducting, the tempo is steady until you arrive at a fermata, at which point you hold time itself. So my friend Nancy has a t-shirt that says, hold me, I'm a fermata. <laughs> and this always fascinated me because the fermata itself is a cool illustration of God's relationship with time. He is the fixed point at the center. He has no beginning and no end. He is the uncreated creator. And then all of time as we perceive it is in his hands. He is sovereign over the beginning. He's the creator. He is the alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet. He's also sovereign over the end, the omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. That's why your Bible has the book of Genesis, where God created, and the book of Revelation, where God has already authored how the story ends. And he, existing outside of time, is sovereign over everything in between. He is the alpha. He is the omega. He is present with us as the beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, zeta, eta, theta, iota, kappa, lambda, mu, nu, xi, omicron, pi, rho, sigma, tau, upsilon, phi, chi, and psi. He's present through every minute of it. He's sovereign. He's outside of time. His eternal power is clear. When you ask the question, who created God, you're building a straw man of God. You're committing a categorical error. You're acting like God is like us, like he needs to be created. When you answer the question, who created the creator, and then you're going to have to ask the question, okay, who created that creator? And then you're going to have to ask the question, okay, but who created that creator? And you will never be done asking the question, who is the creator of the creator of the creator of the creator, this line of creators of creators will stretch well past Bothell. <laughs> you will never be done asking who is the creator of the creator of the creator of the creator. Ultimately, the chain of creators of creators has to end with an uncreated creator because, pinch yourself just to make sure, we exist. What Christianity posits is that chain has only one link in it and it's God. He is the uncreated creator. An uncreated, timeless creator is necessary. Otherwise, there's not one lepton of the physical universe that could spring into existence because universes don't create themselves. We observe the law of entropy. We see decay at work. We know the law of conservation of matter. The matter is neither created nor destroyed, yet we exist. How? That is only possible by a timeless initiator. It is only possible because of the timeless initiator. Classically, the view of the universe was the Aristotelian view. That is to say, the view of Aristotle, who said the universe simply is. All right, this is what Richard Dawkins likewise would refer to. And that served scholarly academia pretty well until a punk with a telescope named Hubble discovered something. The universe is expanding the greatest mind ever, Albert Einstein, was an atheist until this discovery. He said, quite famously, I see now the necessity for a beginning. Because the universe is expanding, what does that mean? It was at one point closer together. 
As a Christian kid, I used to think that the Big Bang Theory was this big opposition to Christianity. It actually, Christian, use the Big Bang Theory to your advantage because it is a concession that the Aristotelian view of the universe has always been wrong. Now, it was wrong from the onset because even immortal matter still begs the question of a creator. But it's all the better for us to see that the universe is expanding, which points to the finitude of its life, meaning it had to have been initiated. It had to have been created. God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because of what God has made. You know, my skeptical friend, universes don't just bam into existence. If you really believe that, if you really believe that, you would never leave your house. You'd wear a helmet, cover yourself in bubble wrap, and peer around corners before you walked around them. Because you don't know if you're going to get hit in the face with like a universe. (laughs) You don't believe that universes explode into existence. You don't believe that. You've always known that you have a creator. Stop suppressing that truth with your wickedness today and instead face the truth with a capital T. His name is Jesus. He loves you. He's your savior. Be saved today. No more lying to yourself. No more believing foolishness. You have always known about the eternal power and divine nature of God. You've always, always, always known this. So by the spirit of God, would you confess that he is Lord today? When we continue in the text, we see something that's controversial in verse 22, verse 21 rather, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. What does it mean for one's thinking to become worthless? If your underlying presupposition is flawed, every conclusion you draw after that is flawed a priori. Meaning whatever, whatever your premise, if you start with a false premise, a messed up premise, everything you say after that can't be trusted. Even if your worldview is perfectly cohesive in steps two through 999, they're all ruined if you skip step one, which atheism necessarily must and always will. It could never have an audacious claim to the truth because it doesn't account for basic origins, ultimate origins. Rather, what I posit is what I teach my children, Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you want to build your worldview in a way that is complete, start with step one, the creator. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and discipline. But what we have done as a culture, and what sister churches of ours, if we can call them that, have done is spoken on God's behalf and changed his narrative. We have taken God's word, which is overtly clear, and we have muddied it. We have written books by Matthew Vines, God and the Gay Christian, which pretends like God hasn't clearly said what he has said. This is incredibly dangerous, Christian. This is incredibly dangerous. All right, my LGBTQIA plus friend, if you've been under the impression that God is perfectly okay with your sin and you've never heard these words before, that's by design because these words are so incredibly clear. People know that if you read this, if you hear God's word, you won't be under the lie anymore that God's okay with it. But what our culture has done is spoken for God. We find ourselves created in a universe, existing here physically in perfect order with seeming intentionality like this guitar, All right? We know when we see the guitar, there had to have been a guitar maker. Like it would be a pretty fortuitous windstorm in a forest to have by happenstance created a guitar. And you are infinitely more complex than a guitar. But stepping into creation, you see yourself and you say like, I, I don't see a creator here. 
I can do what I want with creation. If I pretend like creation doesn't belong to anybody, like I'm not gonna answer to anybody ever for what I do with creation, I can do whatever I want. And I have always, I was born this way, guys. I was born with the desire to destroy a guitar. I was born this way. Don't judge me. Do you see the owner of the guitar anywhere? I don't. Therefore, I can do what I want. Right, is there something wrong with my thinking? But if I, if I stick with my presupposition that I'm never gonna answer to anything, look, this is nice. It's got, a, it's got a pickup installed. These are expensive. Look at that, it's a beautiful guitar. But I was born with the desire to destroy a guitar. It's in my nature and I can't help it. I'm just dancing to the tune of my DNA. It's just, it's, it's just destiny. <laughs> I don't see the owner anywhere, so who's to stop me? Likewise with you, I mean, you find yourself, you've been born into a universe, you exist with created order and intentionality. But where's the creator? You don't see him now. You think if I can just make up my own rules, if I can do what I want with God's creation, then I will never answer to him for it. It's the exact same thing as looking at a guitar with a desire to destroy it, not seeing the creator anywhere, deciding I'm gonna do what I want, I'm never gonna answer for this, I'm going to do whatever I want with God's creation. I may have gone a little far with that. So, what is inevitably gonna happen now? The owner of this guitar is going to come looking for me. I'm gonna to answer to him. I'm gonna to answer to the owner. I'm gonna to answer to the creator of this guitar when all is said and done. I seem to be safe for the moment. So shall I carry on or should I repent? <laughs> repent. If I go under the impression that I can do whatever I want with creation, my thinking is worthless. Your thinking is flawed a priori from the very step one, from the very beginning, your very thinking is flawed. This, is, this leads us directly to verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Jesse, what about people with genius level IQs and photographic memories and PhDs from Harvard who all seem pretty okay with the idea that the universe may have just inexplicably exploded into existence, who all seem to be okay with the obviously impossible abiogenesis, life from absolute non-life, who seem to be totally okay with relativism and postmodernism, the idea that we can do whatever we want with creation because morality is different for every person. There's no creator around, so we can do whatever we want with creation. If you're born with that desire, fulfill it. It's your fate. What about those people? It's like asking the question, yeah, Jesse, I know they're driving the wrong direction, but what if they do it in a Ferrari? Does that make it better? Does that make it okay? This is why you and your mental Volkswagen Beetle can be just fine driving the right direction and get where you're going faster than somebody speeding the wrong direction in a Lamborghini. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. This is happening in academia today. And this flows directly into the following verses. If you're not worshiping the creator, what is left to worship but his creation? And our culture today is worshiping creation instead of the creator. Look at verse 24. Therefore God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. 
delivered them over to the desires of their hearts. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah were simply delivered over to what they wanted. They got their heart's desires in the utmost. They received exactly what they clamored for. They have everything they ever wanted. God handed them over to their own devices. Human lust is insatiable. We will ratify any deviant behavior. We will normalize any form of debauchery and we will approve and even celebrate any conceivable form of perversion and we will never stop. Okay, it's a problem to me that there are commercials on my TV that try to normalize HIV. They show people casually walking on a dock acting like AIDS is normal, like HIV is okay. It is a deadly, so far incurable, sexually transmitted disease. That is not okay. Why are we acting like it's so pleasant to have HIV? Here's what I propose instead. Abide by God's design. A man and a woman who have saved their virginity for marriage have a 0% chance of any kind of disease. I propose God's design instead that a man who stands before God and witnesses on his wedding day, committing to act like Jesus for this woman. And that woman before the same God and the same witnesses commits to act like the church before everybody and the two of them together, Christ and the church and Ephesians 5 marriage, a picture of the gospel together in the ultimate expression of love where human anatomy actually makes sense, new life is created. That's what I propose. And the children born them are raised in a covenant marriage whose Parents are a picture of the gospel itself. This is the sole means by which God ordained the procreation and therefore survival of the human species, even one generation. We've always known this. We've always known this. We've always known this. Gender is not a construct. Anatomy is intentional. This is how the human species survives. Can we stop pretending to be stupid now? Like we all know why God created gender. My skeptical LGBTQIA plus friend, would you be brutally honest for a minute here? You've always known this about yourself. You've always known that God designed you and that God designed the human species for a beautiful purpose, that we, male and female, are created in his image. You have done what you wanted with God's creation, and so you will answer to the creator for what you've done. Do not let your very thinking become worthless because it's based on the idea that you're never gonna answer to him or he hasn't clearly said what he said in his word about your sin. May we stop sinning flagrantly in the face of a holy, omnipotent God and instead, in humility and trembling, repent so that we would be like Nineveh and not like Sodom. May we repent the way that Nineveh repented and was spared so that we don't burn the way that Sodom burned for lack of repentance. My prayer is that as we careen down the slippery slope, that we would give our lives to Christ and experience revival rather than experiencing the outpouring of God's wrath upon sinners like ourselves. In this survey of various sins, we see the the word inventors of evil. And it asks the question, okay, Jesse, what is next then? What's next I'm gonna step down from the platform as I just sort of prognosticate because I don't, this is not the, the, the clearly spoken word of God. This is just what I anticipate is next. The list of letters LGBTQIA has this funny plus that's added on 
because it's pretty obvious that when you keep having to add on more and more accommodations that you might be on shifting sands here. And there's never gonna be an end to the number of letters that are added onto this, but I believe the next one is gonna be the letter P. I think it's gonna stand for polyamory and could possibly even stand for pedophilia. Here's why. In ratifying Obergefell, what we've created is a playbook whereby people of any conceivable sexual orientation can now champion their own sexual desires as though they were an ethnic right. I think that you did a disservice, my LGBTQIA plus friend, you did a disservice to the black community by taking their playbook from the civil rights movement and acting like the things that you crave sexually define you as a person, like an ethnic group. And we've taken that playbook and now it is fair game for people who practice, practice polyamory. You look to a local HGTV listing for the first thruple on reality television coming very soon to a TV near you. Look also to the way in which we have lowered the age of consent inadvertently by celebrating an 11-year-old boy dancing in drag in New York Times Square on Good Morning America to rampant applause. We have sexualized children. Every single person there should have been arrested for child abuse. We are sexualizing children. Likewise, drag queen story hour is a normal thing where a man dresses up like a space invading woman and reads to children to try to normalize this behavior. One of those drag queens turned out to be a convicted pedophile who had children crawling all over him in a library in Oregon. Oops. We are sexualizing children. We're normalizing pedophilia. The next step, I believe, is somebody who likewise is already well-known and affectionately, uh, affectionately adored because of his athletic endeavors, because of his acting career, whatever it is, to step out as a pedophile. And if we don't applaud him, we're all bigots. Likewise, that same exact playbook is gonna be used to endorse polyamory and polygamy. Logically, it is consistent. Ideas have consequences. This is what is coming next. You're gonna see the very nuclear family itself eroded away. This is nothing new. This is what happened in Greece. This is what has happened in various late-stage societies elsewhere. I believe that what we've done, what we've done here is replicated the playbook of Sodom and Gomorrah. When it was first ratified, it was said, if you don't like gay marriage, don't get one. It has nothing to do with you and your family at home. And now, one of the biggest and best homeless ministries in Seattle, a city overrun with homelessness, is being sued into oblivion because they believe wrongly. You can't place foster kids in homes anymore because you believe wrongly about gay marriage. You can't even place children, orphans, in homes because you believe wrongly. I've never seen a movement attack charity this way, but there are homeless ministries that have been sued into oblivion. There are adoption agencies that have been sued into oblivion. There are foster care agencies that are being sued into oblivion while the problem is rampant. Even the GoFundMe accounts raised to help the employees after they lose their jobs, even those get pilfered. I've never seen this happen before. This is wickedness. And we all knew this from day one. Here's what I propose instead. Instead, would you step into God's design for sexuality because it's beautiful and it's intentional? I met a young man named Darius. He came into our student ministry with a folder that said the Gay Straight Alliance. He wanted to make sure that I saw it. And afterwards, I sat down with him face to face. At the end, he waited in the very back of the line to come and speak with me. And I asked him what he thought. And he said, I really wanted, I really wanted to join in with worship. And I really liked those songs. I wanted to sing those songs with everybody. But there were demons in the window who told me that God hates gay people. And so I wasn't allowed to sing. And I said, which window? And he pointed to it. I went to the sound booth and I got a roll of black duct tape and I taped the window down. And then I sat back down. 
I said, do you believe, Darius, God loves you? He said, no, no, God hates gay people, so God doesn't love me. And I showed him John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him would not die, but have everlasting life. It says it right there. It says, God loves you. Do you believe that God loves you? He said, no, no. God hates gay people, so God doesn't love me. I had a few pounds on him, so I grabbed the, the legs of his chair and I slid it until his knees collided with mine. What better reason to get in somebody's face than with God's love? I said, God said that he loves you, Darius. It says it right here. He loves you, he loves you, he loves you, he loves you, he loves you. And Darius sat back for a moment. It's like the clouds parted and he's kind of trying the idea on for size for a moment. God loves me. I said, would you consider this? And he said, I will. And he kept coming back week after week. He'd stand in the back of the line. He called me pastor. I don't think he knows my name to this day. And we would speak about this. And one day he showed up and instead of his Gay Straight Alliance folder, he had a, a giant King James Bible that his grandmother had given him. And he was reading it. He was asking me questions about it. And then one day, the Westboro Baptist Church, it's not a Baptist church at all, it's a cult by all definitions of the word, showed up at his school to protest. And he saw the word Baptist on their sign, saw the word Baptist on our sign, and then he was convinced that we were lying to him and he wouldn't show up. He wouldn't return anybody's calls. And months went by. And the students who were friends with him, I dispatched, please tell him we love him, tell him we love him, tell him just to read his Bible. If nothing else, just read his grandmother's Bible and then we're here for him to answer questions that he has. I was in Kenya, starting a drum line to get kids off drugs and speaking for a youth event to launch the whole thing. Internet was sporadic and would go in and out. While I was on the platform, I was keeping track of time with my cell phone, when suddenly, mid-sermon, internet access came back on. And the first thing that popped up on my phone was a message from Stephen, one of our students, who said, Darius was reading his Bible, and he gave his life to Jesus, and he can't wait to come to church this week. And so I went, yes! And then my translator went, yes! And all the students went, yes! <laughs> and to this day, Darius is walking in repentance. Because he sat down with his Bible and he read the word of God wherein God has spoken very clearly for himself. And right there in his room, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. Now, he still struggles with same-sex attraction. My gay friend, I can't promise you you're ever gonna be done facing temptation. All right, you and I have that in common. All right, see this? I've committed my life likewise to walk in the, in the confines that God has given for my own sexual desires. I'm gonna be faithful to one woman. So you and I have that in common. We're all born with a sin nature sexually, and we're all called by the gospel to repent from sin. So you're not alone in this. You are surrounded by love on all sides and a family of God who's willing to shepherd you through this and walk with you through this and help you share your testimony with others. This is the safest space you've been in all week where you sit here, you are surrounded by the love of Jesus on all sides. Highlands Community Church, do I speak the truth today? Yes. You are surrounded by love. So I don't want you to be deceived. I don't want you to be deceived. And Christian, I don't want you to be a deceiver. All right, look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. This is a critical, critical teaching right now. It's an incredibly offensive verse, but it's what the word of God says. Should I hide it from you, Highlands, or should we read it? Read it. Let's read it. Here's what God said. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this. 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Never has the past tense sounded so beautiful, amen? You were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified. You used to identify yourself by your sexual proclivities, but now your identity, now the letters you can claim are washed, justified, sanctified by the Spirit of our God. You used to be deceived, you used to walk in darkness, but now you walk in marvelous light. No more repenting in the face of a, no, no more sinning flagrantly in the face of a holy, omnipotent God. Instead, we will repent because the the truth of God, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen from what God has made. Christian, do not misrepresent this. Look to 2 Peter chapter 2. That's your homework, Christian. If you have been pretending like God's okay with the sins of our day, look to 2 Peter chapter 2. It's the scariest chapter in the whole Bible. It doesn't speak to people who are struggling with their sin. It speaks to people who misrepresent what God has said. That is the scariest stuff in the Bible, and it's for Christians who falsely teach. Do not be deceived. So my prayer is this. By the Spirit of God, you would join me right now as we pray out to God these same verses that we've been studying for a year and a half now. We're gonna pray John 3, 16 together. We're going to pray Romans 3.23 and 6.23, John 14.6 and Romans 10.9. If the Holy Spirit of God has drawn upon your heart to give your life to Jesus today, no more suppressing the truth with your wickedness. You've always known the eternal power and divine nature of God. Today is the day that you give your life to Jesus. I want you to pray with me. I want you to pray the very first verse. What's the first verse about God's love that I've been sharing, Highlands Community Church? It's John what? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him would not die but have everlasting life. What's the next verse that I've shared with you about how we've all sinned? It's Romans what? Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What's the next verse I've talked about with the wages of our sin? It's Romans what? Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. What verse in John did Jesus make an exclusive claim to the truth in? It's John what? John 14.6. Jesus himself answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then finally, here in the book of Romans, what is the one verse in the Bible that says, if this, then you will be saved? It's Romans what? Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So as the Holy Spirit of God draws upon your heart, my formerly skeptical friend, my former LGBTQIA plus friend, give your life to Jesus, become washed, justified, sanctified by the Spirit of our God. Walk from darkness to light, from sin to repentance, from death to life, glorious, eternal life forever in Jesus' name. Would you pray with me God's words out to God right now. God, I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son so that if I would believe in him, I would not die but have everlasting life. I confess, God, that the wages of my sin is death. I confess, God, that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe you, Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no way I can come to God the Father except through you 
you, Jesus. So right here and now, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Just stand and worship with us. Some of us for the very first time as newly redeemed children of God.